morning, Scott. Good morning. Thank you, Abby. Um, before you go anywhere, can you come back up here? Um, Susan, can you throw that breakfast kit uh, image back up? How come there's detergent this in is the a breakfast? Good so I mean, see, that will be a very memorable it breakfast. Would be. So there's a dish towel and there's detergent. So we do the whole thing. Oh, like, okay. Start to finish. All good. Good question. Okay. I mean, I don't know if it's a good question, but it's a question I had. So. Um, With that in mind, if you have a Bible and want to follow along with us, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 24. Um, This past week, my wife and I were in Cancun, Mexico. Uh, We spent a lot of time by the pool, spent a lot of time on the beach. uh, And and over the course of that week, we also found ourselves having a ton of conversations about heaven and hell. Because that's romantic, right? Um, But it's also... Aside from romantic, it's also really where Matthew chapter 24 invites us to go uh, in lots of lots of different ways. And I'll be honest, it's a huge conversation. Uh, it's a huge conversation that's very abstract. And, and, and so typically what I like to do when I preach is really, uh, especially this year as we've been in Matthew, I find a story of Jesus telling or doing, and we kind of dig, drill right into that story in particular. Today, I have to do it a little bit differently, and I'm going to start with where Jesus, uh, his words take us, but because this is such a bigger conversation, we're going to go all over uh, the Bible, um, because I think it just takes us a lot to understand maybe what Jesus is doing and saying here. Uh, But let's begin where we ended last week. Uh, last week, Abby uh, opened the, the, the sermon series by, by preaching out of the first part of this chapter and invited us uh, to kind of understand how we think about the end of the world, right? Again, this is a series is titled Light of the End of the Tunnel. And Abby asked us to consider uh, kind of what we do when our future feels uncertain. We build all these stories about the end of the world because we are uncomfortable with uncertainty, and, and she also gave us this invitation to see the kingdom of God here in the moment, not to lose what God is doing right in front of us uh, in order to kind of dream and think and wonder about what happens to us in the future. Uh, and so since that's where we've started, we've grounded ourselves kind of in the moment. I'm wondering if we can take a little step further and hold two things at once. Can we find ourselves in the world that God has us right now and still wonder about what is to come. Because these particular chapters that we're going to be working on the next few weeks uh, contain a ton of imagery about the end of the world and about heaven and hell, and there's just a lot going on. So here's the question for today, for you. What is your picture of heaven and hell? What is the story you tell yourself about this idea, right? Uh, Maybe you thought a lot about it and it just drives a ton of what you do. Maybe you don't think about it at all because you don't know what happens after we die. So I'm not even going to spend my time. Maybe you look forward to it. Maybe you are afraid of it. I don't know what it is, but what is the story you tell yourself about heaven and hell? To most people, I think the story kind of goes like this. Today, I live on earth. One day, I won't. I will die. And when I die, I will stand before God, and God will either send me up to heaven if I've done the right things, or down to hell if I haven't. 
It's a story that's really common. We might even take it for granted. Uh, It's the kind of story that we tell in order to get someone to accept Jesus. It's the kind of story we tell frankly, in order to help our kids behave correctly at times. And, and it's also a story that for those of us who put ourselves in the good people category, we hope is true. But it's also wrong. It's not only wrong, it is a complete misunderstanding of how the gospel works. And I think totally warps our understanding of our life here on earth today, as well as our understanding of heaven and hell. So today we're going to do three things. First, we're going to unpack that story. We're going to talk about where it comes from and and, and how we we get to this this story that we tell ourselves about heaven and hell. Uh, So that's what we'll do first. After we do that, I'm going to tell you three problems with that story. And then finally, I'm going to give you one picture that can change the way you think about heaven and hell and therefore about how you think about your life today. So one story, three problems, one picture. That's what we're going to do today. So let's start with our story. Again, that might not be exactly the story you tell yourself about heaven and hell, but it might be close. And I want to jump into Matthew chapter 24, verse 38, uh, and and just talk about how we think about that story. So uh, let me get right into that. This is Matthew. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Uh, Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And that is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. And then we'll jump down to verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants of his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away for a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So that's Jesus talking. And it's a really bleak picture that he tends to paint, isn't it? And I think it's a picture that has a power to shape the story we tell ourselves about heaven and hell. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Those first few verses in Matthew 39, or Matthew 24, verse 39, this is how it's going to be. Two people will be in a field. One of them's just going to be gone. Two women will be doing their chores, and poof, one of them disappears. I can see how when we hear these words, we come to believe that someday we're just going to be plucked off the earth. We won't even know When it happens, and many people refer to this as the rapture. This moment in time where people are lifted up to heaven in a a blink of an eye. Now, just so you know, most mainstream uh, denominations and understanding of Christianity totally reject this idea of the rapture. And, and, And as a reformed church, we do as well. 
But when Jesus talks like this, it's really hard for that not to stick inside of us, right? That one day we're going to be whisked away to heaven in some kind of grand rapture, right? So that is one part of this story. Another part of this story that I think shapes us is Jesus talks about servants, doesn't he? Right? In that second part, he talks about a good master who treats his servants well, wicked masters who beat their servants. And with that kind of language, now we internalize what the criteria might be to get whisked away to heaven, right? We do good things. We're a good servant. That's what happens to us. We go to heaven. We don't. Well, we end up left behind, I guess. So, and then finally, let's get to that last verse that I read in verse 51. He will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the one that leads us to believe this idea of hell as a place of torture, as a place of punishment, this, this eternal torture chamber, Right? Not only will a good person kind of get to go up to heaven, but a bad person results in this eternal torture chamber. Uh, Maybe you're familiar with the idea of Dante's Inferno. It's been around for a really long time. It's this epic poem, the divine comedy. And Dante does a lot of work in this epic poem to shape our perception of hell. He kind of paints it as these layers, these nine circles of hell uh, that exist with varying levels of, of torture and punishment. And, and the worse sinner you are, the deeper you go and the worse punishment you experience. So are you tracking so far with our story? Right? Good people whisked away to heaven. Bad people tortured in hell. It's all determined by the good or bad things you do right now. That's the story. You may not have thought this deeply about heaven and hell, but I'd venture to guess that this story feels familiar to the story you tell yourself when you think about this idea. And I just want to challenge you in this series to personally consider what it is that you think of when you think of heaven and hell and earth and death Because I believe that these are foundational ideas that have the power to shape how you live your life today, how you interact with other people. I mean, if you believe in a hell, it shapes the way in which you live. If you believe the story, if I die, God's going to send me up or down based on what I've done, that shapes your life. It shapes how you interact with the world. That's the story we tell ourselves. And now let's get to some of the problems because this story has problems. And I don't think that Jesus is mistaken in the way he talks in this chapter. I think the way we interpret what he's saying is not in line with the totality of the gospel. So let me give you three problems with this story. Problem number one, this story is a me-centered story. It is not a God-centered story. I live on earth. One day I will die. And then I will stand. And if I was good or bad, God will send me somewhere. Who's the main character in that story? It's you. It's me. And if this is the way you think about the afterlife, if you think about heaven and hell, then you have placed yourself as the main character in the story. And just a spoiler alert, whenever you do that in life, it ends up bad for you. 
it will, right? And that's a problem because that is not the gospel's understanding of the story. The gospel is God-centric. He is at the center of every story. The story starts with God. It ends with God. God is throughout the middle of every single piece of every story of our lives. I actually really love the way the Apostle Paul talks about this in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Listen to what Paul says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for the adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. It's he and then it's us. The Apostle Paul is perhaps the greatest gospel storyteller there ever was. And the way Paul talks about the story of the gospel always starts with God. It always starts with God and flows to us from him. In fact, this is what I love about the the, um, book of Ephesians. This is a letter he wrote to followers of Christ in the town of Ephesus. And that letter is six chapters long. And Paul talks like this for three of those six chapters. This is a letter he wrote to his church to say, this is how you guys should live your life. And for half the book, he's reminding us that the story centers on God. And then finally, in in chapter four, he starts chapter four with, with this. He says, so therefore, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. How many of us start with living a life that is worthy instead? How many of us expect the people that we want to reach, whether it's our neighbor, whether it's our child, whether it's even ourselves, to shape their lives first and foremost out of obedience and worship without even recognizing that it is a response to something that God has done first? For many of us, it's all live a worthy life and not he chose us, he gave us, he made known to us. That's a problem with this story we tell ourselves about heaven and hell. It puts me in the center, not God. And that is not how the gospel works. So that's problem number one. It is a me-centered story, not a God-centered story. Our second problem comes from a very similar place in that the typical story we tell ourselves about heaven and hell is a works-centered story, not a grace-centered story. It almost exclusively focuses on what we do, not on what God does. We end up living in a world dominated by questions like, 
Am I good enough? Have I done enough of the right things that will send me to heaven? Now that what do I do to be good enough question, like it varies widely on who you talk to, right? For some people, it's like, well, you got to pray this specific prayer. You got to think this specific thought. You've got to, for others, it's, it's you've got to feed the homeless. For some, it's just making sure there's more good than bad in our lives. But any way you answer that question still comes down to what you do, not what God does. If you have kids, the longer you have kids in your home, the older you get, the more you understand this dynamic. Because there was a time when my boys were little and I could say, hey, buddy, would you go get me a soda out of the fridge while I sit here on the couch and watch football? And they were happy to oblige. I'm helping dad, right? That goes away after a while, right? Because then it becomes... Hey, buddy, if you vacuum the house, I'll let you stay up an hour later, right? You know this. If you clean your room, I'll get us pizza for dinner. If you just stop arguing with me, I'll give you $1,000, right? This is how we are so familiar with this. And it strikes me that when everything is based on what we do, we get really good at bargaining with God which translates into this cosmic version of, God, if I do my chores, will you let me into heaven? But that's not how the gospel works. The gospel version of heaven and hell always starts with God's actions, not ours. In fact, let's go back to Paul in Ephesians in chapter two. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast. Or if you're a, I love Romans person, right? Like Paul says this in Romans. And if by grace, then it is no longer works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. If where we go after we die is determined by how good of a person you are, then you might be living into a story that has nothing to do with the gospel. Because the gospel story is not a story of behavior management. It is a story centered on God's grace, his redemptive work in this world. It's the God who frees his entire nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt before he gives them the law and the Ten Commandments and how they should live. It is the father who embraces his prodigal son who, uh, who has returned before that son even changes one thing about the way he lives. It is the father who sends his son to die on the cross for you and for me while we are still sinners before anything in our life has changed. And that's important because otherwise the story is that we are the actor and God is the responder. That doesn't feel like that should be the way it should be with my relationship with God. No, instead our actions, our obedience, our worship always comes as a response to experiencing the grace and love of the Father. So our first problem with this typical story we tell ourselves about heaven and hell is that it is me-centered, it is not God-centered. And the second problem we have with it is that it is works-centered, it is not grace-centered. 
And the third problem that we have with this typical story of heaven and hell is that it is often hell-centered, not earth-centered. Or maybe even a better way is not creation-centered. Think about it this way. We talk about heaven and hell in the same breath all the time. I've done it 50 times this morning already, right? But God doesn't. That's not how God talks. In fact, if you were to go like on, a, on like a Bible search site, like Bible Hub or something like that, and you just do a, a, a keyword search for the words heaven and hell together, you won't get any responses. You'll get zero. In fact, in this particular search, uh, the, the software is like, maybe you meant Psalm 139, where he talks about heavens and depths, Right? But you actually don't see heaven and hell in the Bible go together in the same breath. Heaven shows up and hell shows up a lot throughout the whole thing, but not together, not so much together. I don't know. Does that surprise you? It surprises me a lot, right? Heaven and hell just rolls off the tongue. It's cemented in my mind of two sides of the same coin, the yin and the yang to each other. It's like salt and pepper or peanut butter and jelly or ketchup and mustard. We must be getting close to lunch, right? But that's how my brain understands heaven and hell. But it's not true. Hell does not exist as the counterpart, the yin to heaven's yang, right? Heaven does not exist as the other side of the same coin from hell. The Bible frames that relationship differently. Now, do that same search again, and instead, use the two key words of heaven and earth, and you get a whole different response. You get almost 200 uh, verses where heaven and earth show up together. It's all over the Bible. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and... Thank you, the earth, right? Deuteronomy. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do the deeds and the mighty works you do? Or what about Psalms, the poetry of the psalmist? Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them. Get to the New Testament. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Go to Revelation, the picture of the end, this image. John writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and they were no longer any sea. It's interesting. I don't know if that surprises you, but it surprises me. And here's what you need to know, that heaven's primary counterpart in the gospel story is not hell. It is earth. It is creation. Because Genesis tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. It does not say that God created heaven and earth and hell. Instead, what it says is that God created heaven and earth, and that relationship is torn apart by sin. That heaven and earth were created in an integrated relationship. God made his home on earth. He walked through the garden with humanity, with his creation. And then that relationship was torn apart by sin. And only after that point do we see language like God makes his home in heaven, right? And like everything else 
in the gospel, the relationship between heaven and earth is meant to be reconciled, to be brought back together. So God's purpose is not to get us out of earth and into heaven. It's to bring heaven and earth back together. I saw a new heaven and a new earth reconciled together. So does that mean hell doesn't exist? No, of course not. Because for the world to be reconciled to God, it must be reconciled from something. From the divisive and the destructive power of sin, it must be rescued from hell. Hell is a real thing. And you have a ton of questions about hell that I'm not going to talk about today. But next week I will. Next week in the next part of this series, I'm going to focus specifically on the nature and understanding of how do we think about hell. Where it is, how it's broken our world, but... For today, when we tell our typical story of heaven and hell, we tend to tell a story that is centered on avoiding hell. But the gospel tells a story that is centered on reconciling the creator and the creation, bringing together heaven and hell. So we have problems with this kind of story. It's that it's me-centered. It's not God-centered. It's works-centered. It's, it, it's not grace-centered. And it's hell-centered, not earth-centered or creation-centered. So now I've kind of undone that typical story we tell ourselves. And I don't want to just like leave it all in a pile and go, all right, good luck with that, right? Um, I want to give you a picture that will help you think differently Uh, about how you see the gospel story at work in heaven and in hell, but also in our life today. So let's get to our our first picture. This is a picture of our typical story, right? Today I live on earth. One day I'm going to die. God's going to send me up to heaven or down to earth, depending on how many good things I've done, right? That's an image of our particular version of the story. And our version of the story has problems. Lots of them. I just taught through three of them. But the gospel version of this story is different. It's our second picture, right? The gospel version of this story is that God created heaven and earth in relationship. And our world is ravaged by the power of hell, the power of sin that comes from the result of the fall. So that's the reality of how these things are working. And then in our third picture here, in order for God to move that forward, to reconcile earth and heaven again, he needs to remove that destructive power of hell. And so when you put all this together in our fourth picture, uh, you have a choice in how you think about how God interacts with the world. Because in one version of the story of God, you have a God who is vengeful. You have a God who created everything perfectly and we messed it up and he's so mad that he kicks us out and he gives us a bunch of punishments throughout the Old Testament when we keep stepping out of line and then you get to the end of the whole story and he sends us up or he sends us down. It's an angry, it's a vengeful, punishing God. But I don't think that's the story of the God in the gospel, in the Bible. Because that story is a God who created the world. And he loved his creation so much that when his creation stepped away from him, it broke his heart. 
And so he kept freeing his people from these bonds of slavery in lots of different ways. He kept giving them ways to live their life to draw them back to him instead of away from him. And when that didn't work, he said, I got to give them a new way to connect to me. So I'm going to send my son. And my son is going to draw people back to him because he's going to stand in the gap. He's going he's to take on the power of death and hell so they don't have to anymore. And eventually he's going to bring that all back together because he loved his creation when he made it and he still does. So we have a choice in how we think about this. We can tell the story of being whisked away from earth based on how good or bad we are, or we can tell the story of a God who's bringing everything back into relationship with him and that he has to remove the power of hell to do it. So just a side note, does this mean Jesus was lying, right? Does this mean Jesus was wrong when he talks these, the, the ways he talks in Matthew 24? And I would say no, that he's talking about two things that you're probably not thinking Number one, as Abby talked about last week, when Jesus wasn't specifically talking about heaven and hell in in this chapter, though often we understand it as so. In this chapter, Jesus was having a conversation about the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the Israelites' way of life and their captivity in Babylon, which historically happened ahead of Jesus in, in our past in 70 AD. It's widely believed that the specific things that he was talking about had not yet come to pass in their community, but have in our history. So that's number one. We have to remember the historical context. And second, he was talking about what it was going to be like when he's no longer there. When God is removed from the earth, it feels a lot like what he talked about. The power of hell can be overwhelming in our world. And all the more reason to look forward to his return at a day and an hour that we don't know. He uses the language of a bride and a bridegroom coming back together. So he's kind of describing the nature of the world when the power of hell is in it and the power of God is not. And so I think how we understand heaven and hell is deeply connected with reconciliation of the gospel. And that's big. That's abstract. This may be a message you listen to twice because you're like, I didn't catch all that. But let's remember a few things. Number one, the typical story we tell about heaven and hell is not the gospel. It's me-centered. It's work-centered. It totally ignores God's relationship with his creation. And two, the story we tell ourselves about heaven and hell actually shapes how we live on earth right now. Because if you believe one way about earth that we're just going to leave, it doesn't matter anymore. But my question today was sort of, can we hold these ideas at once? Can we anchor and ground ourselves in our world today and yet still wonder about this picture of what's to come? Can we follow Abby's invitation to show up in the now and engage in God's kingdom right in front of us? Because I don't think it's an either or, I think it's both. I think our understanding of heaven and hell directs how we live our life on earth. And so today I want to give you two things, two ways that we can kind of take this picture and live into it right now, two handles. And the first one is this. I'd encourage you, I'd invite you to talk about what God has done 
before you talk about how we should live. When we think we are the central actor in our story, we focus a lot on how we should live. Whether we think that the way we live determines our place in the afterlife, or just simply believe that we have the most clear certainty on how the world works. Whenever we are the central actor in the story, we tend to move away from the gospel. Let me say that again. Whenever we are the central actor in the story, we tend to move away from the gospel. So instead, we should make it a practice to recognize God first and foremost. And when we do that, we talk differently, right? What would it look like for you to talk to your children first about who God is and what he has done before you ask them to change how they live their life? What would it look like for you to talk every single day about what Paul talks about in Ephesians, about a God who is for us, about a God who loves us, about a God who has grace for us? Talk about what God has done before you talk about how we should live. It'll change the way you interact in this world. This understanding of how God relates to his creation will change the way you live. So that's the first one. If we want to live into a new story, we talk about what God has done before we talk about how we should live. Number two, help the bride prepare for the wedding. Help the bride prepare for the wedding. You see, when we follow the typical narrative, our world, our relationships, our priorities, at the end of the day, they don't mean much, right? The world is just temporary. It's going to hell in a handbasket, right? Like there will be some glad morning when this life is over where I'll fly away. And that turns this this world, this culture, these relationships into something we use and something we consume. But God does not view our world as something temporary to use and consume. God does not think of this world as a prostitute. He thinks of this world as his bride as his bride, as this, as this thing he loves that is coming together in reconciliation. And here we are helping the bride prepare herself. So if we believe the gospel understanding of eternity, it drives us to engage the world as God would. And there is a gentleness and there is a preciousness and there is a deep devotion and love in our approach to a bride rather than something that is temporary that we use and throw away. So are you helping the bride prepare for the wedding day? Are you bringing about reconciliation and wholeness in the world that you live in? Or are you bringing about more division? Are you bringing things together or tearing them apart? Are you bringing about God's kingdom or are you keeping it separate from the world? Again, it's a big idea, but if we can live into a new story, we can think of a new way in which God relates to us and God relates to heaven and hell, we can change the way we live on earth today because God is a God of reconciliation. He has a plan to bring heaven and earth back, heaven and creation into this integrated relationship, creator and creation, once again in harmony. And I think if we truly believe that, it changes the way we live. And so that's our invitation today to tell ourselves a new story and to live into a new story of the God of reconciliation. Let's pray together. 
Lord God, I'm grateful today for um, different ways of thinking and understanding how you are at work. Because God, I confess that I don't know everything. I have a lot of questions. I, I wonder a lot about the nature of who you are and how you work. And God, I confess that there's nothing like the idea of heaven and hell that gets us more confused because it is something we cannot know. But God, I ask you to draw us into your gospel story, draw us back to the text, draw us back into the scripture and help us to see the story that you're writing right in front of us and how that story will continue beyond our death and into eternity because God, you are the main actor in that story and we aren't. And we confess the times where we put ourselves in the center of the story, where we move ourselves away from you and we ask you to forgive us and to do what you have done throughout the entire story of history. Continue to draw us back to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.